From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. Happy New Year! A lot of people have been increasingly hesitant to celebrate January 1 in recent years as each new calendar seems to bring enormous challenges and significant disappointments. However, a lot of what 2023 will bring is up to us, each of us and the collective us. So we're starting the new year with three inspiring guests, each equipped to help us think about ways to chart the best course in the year ahead. On this week's show, I'll be talking with Father James Martin, author and editor-at-large at America Magazine, author and meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg, and author and former Harvard University humanist chaplain Chris Stedman. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I'm in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You don't want to miss it. So please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. And if you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pinched in yet, it's not too late. This is the time of year we would really appreciate a gift and information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Sharon Salzberg is a central figure in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher and New York Times bestselling author, bringing Buddhist wisdom to contemporary challenges. She has a new book coming out in April called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. And so I am so glad to welcome her to talk about real life, hers, mine, and all of our listeners. So welcome to the program, Sharon. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you. Ah, well, you know, you're one of my favorite people. I don't get to see you nearly enough, but every time I do, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, that was the best use of these, uh, this hour or two hours, however long we're together. So I feel, I feel so grateful that you're with uh, us today. And we're, you know, we're doing a New Year's show. We're like, we're, we're actually going to, Take some time, um, take a moment, and offer our listeners some wisdom on what what they can do, what all of us can do to just take advantage of this time when it's almost you know kind of packaged as a time to think about what the last year was and and think about what the next year is. And and I'm curious, do you have any rituals of this time of year or anything that you like to do that makes space for those kind of reflection? Well, first I should say I'm a, a giant fan of New Year's. And I, I always <sighs> often say that as a Jew and a Buddhist and an American, I get three a year. It pleases <laughs> me no end. That's <laughs> awesome. Like, okay, so yes, we have the Jewish New, New Year's, which is Rosh Hashanah, right? Right. And and then and tell us the the Buddhist New Year is Buddhist New Year is the full moon. It's by the full moon, so it's usually February ish. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what is that called? 
Losar, L-O-S-A-R. Losar, okay. And then we have the calendar, you New Year's. So you, you're, you've got all kinds of ritual I, and, I have, and practices. I have lots of chances, yeah. Yeah, you got you got lots in your back pocket. Okay, so what you know? What are some things that you really enjoy doing? And I love the well, fact that you're a big fan. That's perfect. Well, one of the things we used to do here, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Barry Mass, where the Insight Meditation Society is. It's right next door to my house, and uh, we used to have a New Year's Eve ritual where we would tear up a calendar. And everyone would get to comment on like January and then we'd burn it, you know, like some people with relish, like forget January, you know, and, uh, you know, so we're letting go of the past and sometimes it's with regret, you know, like, gee, I wish that was still happening. Sometimes it's just recognizing it is still happening, whatever. Sometimes it's like, thank God that's over. And I can remember, ironically enough, I don't do that physically anymore with a group and a fire and all that. But I, I often do it psychologically as a kind of ritual, like, okay, we're going to really work through, uh, you know, to at least some extent this past year, we're going to start anew. Uh, and I remember doing that um, New Year's Eve 2020, thinking, you know, 2019 was kind of tough. Isn't it great? <laughs> it's almost over. Like, yeah. And it's left yeah. to go. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> Who yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually really interesting. I mean, it, it, it's a, you know, it, I'm imagining it with the whole ritual of the fire and things like that. And, you know, just the, this principle of that is no longer here. Like we can't, you know, we can, we can't just stay there, whatever, you know, for good or for yeah. ill, it's no longer here. And yeah. so like, you know, what, what are we going to, but, but I think that that process of really reflecting, looking back, I'm curious this year, if there's, if there's anything that you're particularly thinking about as far as this past year that, that really strikes you personally um, and, you know, whatever, whatever comes to mind that, that you're you're imagining saying okay like time to burn the calendar or time to hold on to that or or, or whatever what do you is there anything you're thinking about uh well i'm thinking about a lot you know um it's been an impactful year i've written two books you know two which are coming out Congratulations. Uh, next year thank you um what are the two books i mentioned one of them what are the yeah. two books I want to make well, sure. Well, I, uh, I, you know, have been very reclusive for almost three years now. I came up to Barry in March of 2020 from New York City, and thinking I'll go up there for a couple of weeks and ride this out. And then I was here for eight months before I got back to New York. And you know, and in that process, um, I wrote two books. One is Real Life, which began interestingly enough when uh, two years in a row, actually, in kind of. Uh, isolation, I watched this program online, Saturday Night Seder, because that was my Seder. I didn't go anywhere. Uh huh. And uh, it was this fabulous compilation of talents. It was one of the first programs, I think, ever created on Zoom, basically, you know, where the writers never met. But, and it was a Seder. It was funny. There were brilliant singers. There were rabbis. I learned a lot. Um, and it reminded me that the word Egypt is actually symbolic for constriction or narrowness mm. or narrow-mindedness. So that journey is the journey from narrowness to expansion, to openness. Mm. So it's the subtitle mm. of the book. And so it's so interesting. That the you, book. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you wrote that in a time when actually right. your life was very constricted. That's right. I mean, like the the physicality of it, and right. you know, and and the ability to to navigate what we would consider like freely the you know the yeah, physical yeah. world. Yeah, but my inner life was not, you know, and I thank God all the time I had an inner life, uh, and and could you know reside there. So that's that book, and then. Um, the last lunch I had in New York in a restaurant, the last time I ate in a restaurant uh, indoors, uh, was just before I left. It was during that lunch I decided to leave and come up here temporarily. And I, I had met with an editor who proposed to me what I call a gift book, like short sayings, illustrations. And I wasn't, you know, um, I had never thought about anything like that. And then maybe six months into being here, I thought, I remembered that conversation. And I thought, oh, our attention span is not so great these days, you know. Maybe mm. that is really the perfect vehicle. So that's what that is. Uh, mm. It's called What's Finding, Finding Your Way. It's a different publisher. Um, and it's illustrated, and it's just these short mm-hmm. either passages mm. from the podcasts I had done or yeah. something, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's, that's really great. I mean, congratulations. Yeah. That's really, yeah. that's marvelous. Well, you're going to come back and we're going to talk all sorts of more about that. Okay. I mean, that's, that's really, great. that's really great. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. you know, back to your question, I feel like uh, my life is still um, full of possibility, but I don't often think that. I turned 70 this year. Wow. Much to my amazement. Somebody asked me the other day about 30, and I thought, thank God for you. You know, like, Nice. <laughs> Say it again. You know? uh, or one of my bugaboos, uh, which I just had to do today, was when you have to enter your birth year on something, you have to scroll and scroll yeah, and scroll yeah, yeah, yeah. and scroll. Because I started in like 1998 or something. And I think, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I see how it's talking about constriction or narrowness. It would be so easy to think, okay. You know, uh, I started a retreat center. I've done what I've done to whatever degree I could do it well and just, you know, hang out and, and be complacent. And the countervailing forces, you can never do that. You know, life is always full of possibility. It's a new year. Let's just see where it can go. Maybe it's deepening things I've already done or, or have tried uh, in terms of my inner life or maybe it's something new, you know, and, and not wow. thinking it's too late, you know? Yeah. I think that, wow, that is like, that I think is, is like a, a perfect end of year, new year kind of imagination. It's an imagination because it's, it's very easy. I think to say, well, this is what I've got. This is what I, you know, this is, you know, this is what has happened to me. And, you know, and I just think that the, the idea that, you know, at 70 or 80 or whatever you are or, or, you know, younger and struggling with ever, you know, with, you know, everybody's dealing with it, you know, not, you know, in different ways. And so, you know, we, the idea that that, that there doesn't have to be stasis, that you can imagine a different way of being. And I think that that is like perhaps the, the gift of kind of spiritual wisdom is you know ex- uh, you know I, I was just about to go into like the um the uh kind of the aa 
you know, but but that goes back to Reinhold Niebuhr, like accept what you, you know, have to accept, you know, that there, there's, there are real things happening, but change what you can change and know the difference and then and then do what you can, you know, and, and also yeah. I think, you know, I think it's also sometimes said it's fine to rest. You know, <laughs> like you don't always have to be like, you know, OK, what's my next plan? I'm I'm I find myself very um, struggling with the idea of like, OK, I can just chill for a second because I'm so like, go, 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 go. Um, but so so what are some like what is a Buddhist scripture? <laughs> to sorry, I, I know that that's not the right way to put it, but like what what are some like what are some sayings of the Buddha or or other things that might um that are can help guide you in this in the in this kind of work that you're doing end of year work well the thing i did um very predominantly with my previous book real change which came out during the kind of height of the pandemic was um that i had written all of it you know by 2019 i turned it in and then publishing being what it is you know it wasn't coming out yet and uh when it was about to come out, uh, they delayed it because of the conditions. And so there was like an extra three months or something like that. And a friend of mine was reading it and in order to excerpt it, and he said, you know, I really like the book, but I kept reading those examples you used. And I thought, that's what made you anxious? Where will you see what's coming? So I mm. took that to heart and I went to the publisher and I said, could I possibly write a new preface to help ground or contextualize the book? And they said, yes. And so my overarching question to myself in doing that was, what's still true? Like, hmm. what can I rely on? What's not going to change in terms of changing conditions? And what I came to was actually the Buddha's saying, uh, amongst other things, I came to the Buddha's saying, which was echoed, you know, generations later by Martin Luther King Jr., um, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. And that can manifest in the simplest of conversations. It doesn't have to be grandiose or magnificent. And so every day I ask myself, or I remind myself, if this is still your aspiration, you know, bring it to life however you can. And so speaking to that uh, person playing some function in my life or uh, being a complaining customer, you know, with a, a service or... Uh, seeking information from the healthcare system or, or whatever it is, you know, I try to remember that and, and right. just bring it to life and, yeah. and saying to myself, and sometimes it's, it's going to shift, you know, what I'm counting on, what is holding me up, what's still true is not going to be the same. But um, thus far, even in, you know, with that particular maxim, you know, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only be ceased by love. There are plenty of circumstances where I or anyone might think, not in this one, surely, you know, like, yeah. this has got to be different. You know, this is not yeah, 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 yeah. This is, this is the one exception to that rule, and that's I'm going right. to take advantage that, of that loophole. That's right. You know, for the <laughs> like 10 seconds, well, you know, not, not going to work. Well, I, I think that, you know, I think especially as we confront, you know, what, you know, rising anti-Semitism, yeah. uh, rising Christian nationalism, like the hate crimes that are out there, the attacks on LGBTQ people. Like there's lots of, you know, I don't, you know, the the, the question of like, 
<laughs> what's love got to do with it? You know, you wrote a book around love. Yeah. And, yeah. and so like, and, um, you know, trying to figure out like how we, how we address these things in productive ways. That's why I keep, yeah. keep on trying to like, you know, cause I, you know, like anyone, I can clench my fist and be like, you know, don't come for me. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm going to protect the people who I, so I, you know, I'm, I just think like I, I what I'm I'm confessing. I'm you're my confessor now. Uh, I'm confessing that this is like a challenge for me, but I think it's yeah. a challenge for most of us. And yeah. especially as you expand that, you know, it's I tr you know, if you can try to do that with your immediate people around you and the people you interact every day, but how do we as a people who are trying to create a world where everyone can have dignity and yeah, and experience yeah. like um experience love how do we use that maxim and i think king was an was speaking into that when he when he used it but how do you imagine and maybe this is a way for us to begin to think about 2023 how can you imagine us going into 2023 taking that with us in the way we envision our country well i um on a personal level i remind myself it's all things big and small you know not to disdain the small listening to somebody or or even reminding myself they're a human being, you know. Yeah. Um, and some of it takes, I think, a real exploration of what love means to us, what compassion means to us. And if it's associated with weakness, that's a problem. You know, it, it doesn't have to be associated with weakness, but it's hard. I mean, it's, you know, clearly it's very hard. Um, and I... I have a sense of um, real possibility, nonetheless. I mean, sometimes it's just overwhelming. It's so terrible. But uh, at the same time, you know, there's there's something something arising that feels generative, that feels positive, and and that um, we should never shut the door. I mean, it's just ludicrous the the, the degree of hatred and and so on that's going on. The thing I remind myself of when it seems like not here, I can't do that here, that doesn't belong here. You know, love is too weakening, it's too beside the point, they're they're crazy, they're, you know, they would hurt me if they could. I remind myself that they say that the Buddha actually first taught loving kindness meditation as the antidote to fear. Mm. And I thought, then mm. I say, would less fear be of any use in this situation? I think, well, yeah, you know, yeah. that could be handy actually. Yeah, you know, rather yeah, than absolutely. giving in or something like that. It's like, okay, what if I had less fear going into this? Which is also like a strategy. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes it's like smart to be scared because, you you know, running away is yeah. okay if I do another day. But, but I do think like a strategy not to let – I think, you know, intimidation is a tactic. And so like not having fear is actually a very powerful response. I will not let you create yeah, yeah. create a life of fear for me. And I think that that is like something that is so many of us can relate to. Um, that feels really, really strong. Tell me a little bit about like a little more about this book. I I love that, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, all the things like moving you know this this movement, the real life, the movement, um, and yeah. what what does freedom mean to you in that equation? That's in the title. Like, what what does yeah. it mean to move 
isolation to openness to freedom. I you you're you're very particular with your words. Yeah, thank you. Like what are what are what's that progression and why that progression? Well, in good Buddhist fashion, uh, I really started with the problem, you know, which he did, you know, quite a bit. Um, there's a lot less rhapsody in, in Buddhist texts than there is, you know, greed, hatred, delusion. So I started with greed, hatred, delusion. When are we most constricted? When do we feel most narrow? When are we most narrow-minded? So that's when we're lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. So that doesn't mean feeling those things. It means being lost in them. And how do they manifest? So, you know, greed is grasping. And then a kind of more contemporary understanding would be addiction. Hmm. Um, hatred is, you know, obvious uh, manifestations of hatred. But I also have shame in there because it's a form of self-hatred and not that onward-leading and then delusion is interesting, you know, in that context, it means um, confusion, not really understanding, not seeing clearly. But one of the things we do sometimes in that state is we get kind of, we turn toward fundamentalism because we're looking for security rather than admit we don't know. It's too scary. So uh, I, have, I have that in there. So, you know, let's look at that. Let's understand those states. How do we approach those states? So it's not through trying to demolish them or annihilate them, but in a way being able to hang out with them, you know, and accompany them and, and take a look at them, not let them take over, but also not being freaked out about them. And in that state, a space opens up where loving kindness can arise, compassion can arise, clarity can arise, um, creativity can arise, awe can arise. So I have, that's how I would define freedom is kind of the space within which these things can emerge. Oh, I love that. This Thank is you. this is going to be another one of those beautiful books that you put out into the world. I'm so Thank excited. You. I wonder if you would just leave us with, um, I, you know, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, uh, some sort of um, meditation, a brief meditation um, for our listeners, uh, for me to go into the new year with. So you mean an actual practice? Yeah. Okay, good. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, you can sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. Start just by listening to sounds, which could be the sounds of my voice or other sounds. And let the sounds wash through you. You don't have to block anything. You don't have to condemn anything. Just let it all arise and pass away. Feel the sensations of your body sitting. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. No, we're actually being held up by something. Look at that. feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space. We think about picking up a finger and like poking it in the air. Space is always touching us. It's already touching us. We just have to receive it. And 
and feel the breath wherever it's strongest for you or clearest for you. This is the gift of life. One breath. The nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen. And bring your attention to that place and just rest. Welcome to the new moment. Welcome to the new year. All right. Thank you so, so much. All right. Sharon Salzberg is a globally known meditation teacher and the best-selling author of many books, including Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, and Coming in April, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It's really a delight. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, Father Jim Martin, Jesuit priest and author of many books about deepening our understanding of the Christian religion and spirituality. And later, Chris Stedman, author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. My guest is a household name for millions of Catholics and non-Catholics, Father James Martin is editor-at-large of America Magazine, the Jesuit Review of Faith and Culture. He's also an influential moral voice for the inclusion of LGBTQI Catholics in the full life of the church and a hero to many, including me. A papally appointed consultant to the Vatican, Father Martin is author of numerous books, including Jesus, a Pilgrimage, Learning to Pray, and Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a relationship of respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Father Martin, welcome back to State of Belief. Thanks, Paul. And it's great to be with one of my favorite people. And of course, uh, you know you can call me Jim. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. So at this time of year, there's a lot of people doing New, New Year's resolutions. But I think sometimes we don't have a chance to really reflect on where we are in our life. And I wonder... How do you treat this time of year that, you know, after Christmas, but before the New Year's? And what do we, how do we understand um, the opportunity of reflection, like deep reflection from your vantage point as someone who really has investigated the power of spirituality? Well, I think it's a, a natural time for people to take stock. Uh, I think Christmas, uh, you know, you're, you're slowing down in terms of at least uh, in the northeast part of the United States, it gets colder. Uh, it's more kind of uh, interior. You're inside more, more time to pray, I think. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, New Year's resolutions are such a bad thing. People tend to turn their noses up at them, but I think it's actually a good thing to take stock. You know, in the Jesuits, we have a, a tradition, you know, called the examination of conscience, where you look over the day and you see where God has been. And one of the things I'd like to recommend to people is to do that for the year, to kind of look back and see where has God been in my year? Because we tend to just, you know, we're all busy people, and we tend to go on to the next thing. 
and we don't pause and look back. And I think it's really in looking back um, that we can see God more clearly. So I think it's a good time to take stock. I, I like this time of year. I tend to tell people, Paul, you may have heard me say this. I don't like Christmas very much, all the craziness around it, but I do like the Feast of the Nativity, right? I like, mm. I mean, I love the readings. I love Advent. I love, uh, you know, all the beautiful, um, you know, the gospel passages. But Christmas and shopping and all that, I can kind of leave behind. Right, right. Actually, this, the season of Advent has long been my mm. favorite when I actually take time to appreciate this idea of openness mm-hmm. and, and expectation and um, what what might come. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, part of your work uh, that the in you know that you're you've been investigating the spiritual tools that are available to us that you know are for Catholics but then also your work has transcended that uh you know there's so many people who find um your work on uh actually I think I think it's underappreciated but your work on humor and and the role that levity <laughs> can have in thinking about like where we are as a community I I love for you to like that is something anybody who gets a chance to talk to you is knows immediately like this is this is a part of what you view as f- be, fully being you so how how does yeah. like how does how does humor factor into it and how can we how can we employ that in our lives well, sure. Uh, you know, I wrote a book called Between Heaven and Mirth, which looked at the place of joy, humor, and laughter in the spiritual life. And, you know, in, in Jewish scriptures, in the Gospels, and one of the things I think that it's important to remember is that Jesus had a sense of humor. And we tend to forget that because we've heard the story so many times, you know, humor is bound to a particular time and place, and so we may not get the humor of first century Judea or Galilee, but there's some funny stories in the Gospels. One quick one I like to say is when Jesus, you know, as you know, talks about the Pharisees who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. We say, oh, that's kind of an interesting image. But in Aramaic, it's a little word play. Uh, the words are galma and gamla. And so he's making a little joke. He's making a little pun. And when you translate it back, you say, oh, he's, he's you know, he's kind of making a little play on words. It's funny. And yet we don't think of Jesus as funny. We don't think of the saints as funny. Oftentimes they were extremely funny. And I think that that translates into people thinking that to be Christian and to be religious is to be deadly serious all the time. You know, but as a friend of mine like to say, if you're, if you're deadly serious, you're probably seriously dead. Too. So, <laughs> so I think it's just part of it. Look, you know, the other thing is we say we all believe Christians believe Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Fully human means having a sense of humor. Right. I mean, so we have to remember that. Yeah. It's kind of threatening. Yeah. It, it threatens some people when you say that. How are you how are you feeling about um you know yourself and what you're thinking about for the for this next year? Like do you have anything like when you think about new year's resolutions or or like where do, where you want to go from here? Uh is there something that you know even as uh, someone as uh, evolved, of course, as you are mm-hmm. spiritually, mm-hmm. Uh, where wh- what are you what are you thinking about going forward? Well, you know, I, there's stuff that's going on in my ministry. So, for example, I'm uh, finishing up finishing up a book on Lazarus that's coming out. I'm working on. I should tell your listeners um, a website that's called Outreach.Faith, which is a, a website for LGBTQ Catholics, and we have lots of stuff coming up there. I, you know, it's funny, Paul, I tend to think of the same thing every year and also, you know, at Lent, which is just being kinder. And, you know, it's not like I'm this evil person, but I really do think that 90% of the Christian life, of the spiritual life is being kind to people. 
And, you know, not saying snotty things and being generous and giving people your time. And so I, I try to each each um, New Year's to try to be kind in the coming year. You know, I fail, as we all do. But that's kind of that's always my resolution. And that's always my Lenten uh, sacrifice, as it were. Well, I'm going to keep you to that because you're often <laughs> very unkind to me. No, oh, actually, right. I, I, constantly. I, I, I constantly. <laughs> no, I actually think that's really great because you know it's very simple mm-hmm. but kindness also can can radiate out because mm-hmm. once you actually are determined to be kind to the people around you it includes a lot of people who aren't like you it includes mm-hmm. involving yourself a little bit more in a community that you're that surrounds you which mm. which which can lead you into some really important directions so i think that that's that's really beautiful yeah and it's not just i mean as you know it's not just being nice which is important right. too uh but it's also being charitable and generous. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was asked to write something on what's called an Ignatian hero, like a Jesuit hero. And I picked this fellow, you probably know the name, uh, Daniel Harrington, a great scripture scholar who um, taught me New Testament. And the reason I picked him was because he's probably one of the kindest people I've ever known. I mean, mm. never a bad word out of his mouth, kind to people, never being sarcastic. And I, I'm when I'm in the presence of people like that, and I'm sure you know them, Paul. People are just kind people. It really is. It's a kind of challenge, and you think, boy, this person really is living the spiritual life. You know, mm, yeah. you know better than I am, right? As a as a Catholic priest. Yeah, yeah. No, I th- I, I love that, and I think it's a um, it's an under. Um, undermentioned value yeah. and virtue, but I think it, yeah. it's great. Let's talk a little bit about this past year, which, you know, you mentioned outreach. I really want to hear mm-hmm. about that. But, sure. you know, this, you have been really involved in some groundbreaking work on um, being, you know, a voice for people in the church who really haven't had much of a voice, which is you know, LGBTQ people mm-hmm. who really are want to maintain their connection with the Catholic Church, but mm-hmm. have really found it to be an adverse situation. Uh, mm-hmm. Adverse. Uh, tell me about that work and what you're what you've done this year, what you're learning and what you're planning going forward. Oh, those are great questions. Uh, well, the big thing was we started this website called Outreach.Faith, um, which has news and essays and resources, a whole sort of resource library for LGBTQ Catholics worldwide in different languages. We had a conference at Fordham University in New York with about 250 people, and it's just blossomed. I never really thought I'd be running a website or running these conferences, but here I am doing it, and I feel like it's God's work kind of bringing me into it. What have I learned? One of the things I've learned is how many different groups there are all over the world uh, that I had no idea about. I was in Rome a couple of weeks ago for a visit uh, at the Vatican, and I gave my first in-person conference you know, because of COVID in two years, and it was in Rome. It was translated. My Italian's not that great. And all these people were coming up. I'm from this group in Milan. I'm from this group in Rome. I'm from, I had no idea these groups existed. And so, and particularly in Europe, there are a lot of sort of smaller groups for LGBTQ Catholics. And that was kind of exciting. And, you know, where this is going, I, it's kind of up to God. It just keeps growing and growing. And uh, we'll see. Yeah, I think that the idea that, you know, it's it's about building coalitions, recognizing yeah. that people are going to do different kinds of things in different contexts, yep. and uh, and and being open to learning from different you know people who are initiating. I'm sure that's very very exciting. So, tell us a little bit. You've referenced it a couple times. You know, 
visiting the Vatican. I assume that means uh, being with Pope Francis. And, you know, this this has been – I I remember, you know, back in the days when I was at HuffPost and we were talk about – you know, I remember like when Pope Francis was um, – I, I guess elevated to the the the, uh, the position and and it just being like you know this kind of really you know beginning to understand this person. What are what have you learned about the person who is Pope Francis over your interactions with him? Well, I've only had really two long meetings with him. Uh, the most recent a month ago. Uh, first of all, he's he's a really nice guy. He's very kind. To use the word we were saying, he's also quite funny. Uh, some uh-huh. jokes I can't repeat. I'll tell you afterwards after we get off the air. But oh, come on, that's true. That well, oh. well, one one thing I will tell you actually. Uh, so I am a member of what's called the Dicastery for Communications, a consultor, which is the communications department of the Vatican. So we have these meetings every two years. I flew over for this meeting. I was very happy to go, and um, they have a general audience with this group. The Pope does okay. But the day before, I met with him privately, and I can say this to talk about LGBTQ Catholics, and he was very warm and open and we had a great conversation and you know very supportive anyway the next day was the general meeting for the whole group right so there were like 200 people there the pope comes in this is very funny this part i can say it's all public the pope comes in and he literally has an eight-page speech and he says in italian my italian's okay um who wants to read this eight-page talk no one wants to hear this i'll I'll give it to my assistant you can read it online let's talk a little bit more informally about communications so he starts off and he's he's very animated and he's you know i don't know how good your italian is but i I hear like oh comunicazione personale and all this kind of stuff ecclesia blah 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 chiesa and then i hear him say ah vedo i see vedo james martin and, I, like, oh <laughs> and you're God. like, and uh, then, and, right. And then he starts talking, blah, 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 in Italian, uh, James Martin, James Martin. And I, and I could tell the body language of people around me wasn't like ribbing me. They were very still. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what is he saying? So he stops to talk and everybody says, oh, he was telling everyone that he thought you were a good communicator because it was about communications uh-huh. and you help people communicate with God and get this and that they should all read your book learning to pray okay wow well so get this so here's the funny part so i go up to him now i speak a little more spanish and he knows that i go up to him everyone is supposed to go up and then shake his hand now i had seen him the day before i go up to him and he says in spanish i told everyone to buy your book i hope you're happy (laughs) (laughs) wow now that is very Gracias, that, that's, gracias, that's Santo Padre. No, so he's he's really funny. He's yeah. a funny guy yeah. and yeah. warm and wonderful and yeah. and very supportive of the work I'm doing. Um, you Isn't know, that amazing, great, though? At great that's expense like, to him too. Yeah, that 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 must feel great because you get you come under a lot of fire. I, do. I mean, I you know, I mean, really, like you know, yeah. people protesting your events. Yeah. Um, you know, people on online, it's vicious. It and is. Uh, it is, you know, how do you, I mean, this is actually kind of a spiritual lesson for all of us. Sure. Like, how do you deal with incoming like that? Like wh- where you are, you know, it's not a question of like whether or not your cause is just and mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not you're like helping people because of course you are. But then all of this vitriol, like, you know, what, what is some, what's this, what's, one of the ways spiritually that you 
counteract that negativity in your life? Well, I'll tell you, and there's a lot. And we, when we first met, I wasn't having any of this. It was this is just recent, the last you know five or six years. So it's new for me to have people really hate me uh, and call me names, and you know, including sometimes bishops and other priests. Uh, so one of the things is I go back to the passage called the rejection at Nazareth in the Gospels, where Jesus is rejected. And I was on a retreat praying about this, and I imagined myself talking to Jesus as we do as Jesuits. And I said to Jesus, well, how could you stand up at the, in the synagogue, which is where he was, and say these things, which is essentially declaring himself as the Messiah, knowing that people would reject you? They end up chasing him out of the town and almost throw him off the brow of a hill. And the words I heard in prayer, not physically heard, um, Jesus saying was, must everyone like you? And I think that the invitation was to let go of the need for people to love, like, and approve of me, everyone, because everyone can't like you. And when you're sort of um, wedded to that, right, you really get sort of, um, you know, you're kind of bound by that. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, knowing that I do have the support of the Pope, of my Jesuit superiors, my Jesuit brothers. That really helps me to know that. And I'm also very careful about what I say. And then the third thing is to say, you know, look, I mean, as a Christian, Jesus promises us this. I mean, if you're going to stand up for people on the margins, right, um, he says, look, kind of expect it. So those things put it in perspective. But really, it's the first thing, just saying that, look, I'm, everyone's not going to like me or approve of me. I do my best. And I, I try to be faithful to church teaching and not challenge it. But also, I try to raise up these people who are really marginalized. And if they don't like me, they don't like me. So truly, it doesn't bother me as much. I mean, it's, it bothers me a little bit, but it's not like I'm losing sleep over it. And I, I also know that I can't answer every crazy critique Right. You know, I, I just can't. So I have to, it's, yeah. it's basically some freedom and detachment. I think that that's really all of that is so wise. And to recognize that, you know, who do you, which voices do you want to listen to? Right. You want to listen to the 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 young, you know, the young person who is is, you know, feels so much hate. Right. towards them and you're that person who has given them hope mm -hmm. and they say thank you to you are you going to hear that voice exactly. or are you going to hear the random person who you don't know who like hates you for a stereotype of uh, you know or whatever reason i just think that's i just i love that and i love the idea of jesus coming up with does everyone have to like you it's yeah, very it's actually very freeing and very. uh and, and and important um i'll, I'll and, never forget that on retreat you know i really heard that very strongly uh but the other thing is you know you know very well paul that the the voices that are the strongest are often people who are dealing with their own sexuality who are right. uncomfortable with their own selves that's that's usually for me been a real a, a kind of tell as they say in gambling that this is someone who's you know if they're like obsessed with this something's going on and i often have a lot of people when i do a little research the people that seem to hate me the most are either ex-gays former gays or people who you think boy something's going on there so yeah, there's a little yeah. compassion that needs to be sort of that, directed towards them too and, and nice for you to be compassionate because uh, well, <laughs> you know there's there, there are some moments when i'm like oh okay so you're coming you're coming for us all right hmm. well let uh, me tell but, you something i know we're running out of a little time but I, i've been surprised that the not this doesn't happen often but occasionally i will get uh facebook messages from people particularly young men who say 
Hey, Father Jim, I'm really sorry. Five years ago, I said these terrible things about you online and was really opposed to you. I've just recently come out, yeah, and I want to apologize. Right, and right, so, right, yeah, yeah, you know, there's that right, path too. Right. Um, so, just in, in closing, like, what I wonder if you'd offer some kind of prayer or you know some sort of spiritual offering as far as. Uh, for all of us who are going into a new year with some uncertainty and imagining uh, a future, maybe you can offer us some some uh, a prayer of hope or uh, so, some offering right now. Yeah, so let's um, let's just ask God to be with us as we think about the year that has passed, and maybe ask God to allow us to see the places where God has been in our lives. Um, we might look back uh, and ask God for um, that insight to see where God has been, to see where we might have turned away from God and missed God's invitations, and really to commit ourselves uh, this year to being open and attentive and awake to God's presence. Hmm. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do, you have a, do you have a New Year's Eve ritual that you do? Yes, my New Year's Eve ritual is to go to bed early. <laughs> ah, <but laughs> you know, it's funny. We always say for a, well, I would say also for a celibate male, they, they always say the two most difficult uh, days of the year are New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day. <laughs> ah, ah, that's <laughs> because, poignant. Well, yeah, for Valent- obviously for Valentine's Day. But at New Year's Eve, everyone's like, oh, you know, kiss me, kiss me. And, you know, I can kiss my family and stuff like that. But it is, you know, for a lot of people, not everybody, it's kind of a couple's thing. And, and also, you know, as a priest, you can't be going out and, you know, like partying all the time. So <laughs> plus, plus I'm getting old and I, I don't like staying up till. <laughs> Midnight. Oh my God! I I I I, I, I completely join you there. Like you know, you try to stay up, and then it's like, okay, it's 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 New Year's somewhere. Can we go to bed? <laughs> right, anyway, exactly. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest, a prolific author and editor at large at American Magazine. Jim, Happy New Year! Thanks for being with us on State of Belief Radio, and thanks to for being such a friend to me over the years. You know, I was going to say the exact same thing. Thank you. And Paul, you know, thank you for your friendship, your support, your wisdom, your encouragement. Um, you're challenging sometimes. You're such a good friend. And I really am very grateful. I don't want to get too mushy on the air, but thank you. And uh, it's great to be with all of you. Chris Stedman is an interfaith activist, a humanist leader, and an author and educator. Chris, you may not remember this, but your first time on this show was in November 2010 when you were five years old or something like that, (laughs) I think. Anyway, there are plenty times after that, uh, of course. But now, Chris, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thanks. It's good to be back (laughs) now that I'm uh, right. Well, we're doing a New Year's Eve show. What's that? You survived. You're, you're oh. thrived. Uh, although right now, uh, Chris just informed us that he's in Minnesota. It's eight below and his uh, heater has broken. So we <laughs> appreciate you. We are doing a New Year's show. So what we're going to do is go from like looking back um, and even looking at the present where you're like freezing in Minnesota <laughs> and then also looking Uh, towards the future. But I'm curious for you, as someone who has really thought deeply about the humanist tradition, the resources within humanism uh, for kind of being aware and and, um, reflecting on uh, on ourselves and on our world, do you have any traditions you do this time of year that uh, that help you kind of take a moment 
And what might those be? Yeah. Um, I definitely have traditions. Some of them are, you know, so I grew up sort of non-religious or just religiously unaffiliated. So we had our kind of family traditions that were our own. When I was a kid, I would make a little like blanket fort that was a time machine. And I would go in there on New Year's Eve and come out after midnight. Um, So I don't do that anymore. I'm a little too big for a blanket fort these days. But um, I do, I I appreciate the end of the year as a time to reflect back. Um, And for me, it looks like a number of things. I've always loved music, for example. So every year I make a list of my favorite records that I've listened to every year. It's something I just make for myself. And I've been doing it since I was a kid. And for me, music acts as a kind of time capsule. If I listen to a record, um, I can sort of be transported back to the moment in my life that that record was really meaningful. And it helps me sort of access the emotions and memories of that time. So I think practices like that um, are they can be incredibly valuable. And and just the end of the year in general, I think is a time for taking stock of what, you know, what you've done over the last year, what has felt particularly meaningful to you, maybe letting go of things that have, you know, weighed you down and then sort of recommitting to the work of being human and looking ahead to a new year full of new opportunities. Um, And, you know, in terms of the sort of humanist perspective on that, one of the last things I did in 2022 is something I always wanted to do, um, which is get knuckle tattoos, <laughs> which is maybe sort of silly. You can we're on video, so you can see them right here. Um, wow! Oh yeah. my God, this yeah. is so cool. <laughs> what the right and one says this. The right one the says the left or, one. Yeah says life the left one says do i have that right or am i no you're you're reading it correctly backwards it says this life yeah, that's right this this life mm-hmm. and you know one always... knuckle says this one says life that's right share a little bit more about what what that means to you yeah so that's inspired by a book that i read a few years ago called this life by martin hagland um he teaches at yale and he is a an atheist, and he makes the argument that for the atheist, the most precious resource that we have is time. Because if you don't believe in eternity, if you believe that this life is sort of all that we have, then, you know, it's every moment is sort of precious um, from that vantage point. And so he argues that all human beings should have the sort of fundamental right to spend their time in ways that feel meaningful to them. And he sort of goes on to um, explore how you know, in the world that we live in right now, that's not the case. Most people don't get to spend um, at least the majority of their time in ways that feel meaningful to them. Um, Living under capitalism, for example, forces us to sort of prioritize our labor um, over sort of other things that might feel meaningful. And so the book ultimately is this argument that, you know, time is incredibly precious, and that we all deserve to live lives that in which our time is spent in ways that feel meaningful. And for me, I moved back to Minnesota in 2017 um, after, you know, I lived out East working as a humanist chaplain for the better part of a decade. And when I moved back home, one of the biggest goals I had was to try to sort of change my relationship to time. Um, You know, I, I was, um, when I lived out East, I loved the work I was doing, but my whole life was work really. And when I came back to Minnesota, I wanted to you know, get a sort of better balance in my life, spend more time with family, spend more time on hobbies, things that I just never prioritized. And so that that sort of commitment to spending time in ways that feel meaningful is 
very important to me, um, both as an atheist and a humanist. And I think, you know, as someone who values the sort of precious time moments that I get with the people I love, um, over the last few years, I have experienced yeah. a number of personal losses and it really mm -hmm. has just sort of driven that home for me all the more that, um, you know, our time really is incredibly precious and every human being deserves to spend their time in ways that feel meaningful. Well, I, I think that's, that is like, an, it's, it's a great moment kind of, uh, you know, an, uh, for me, an interfaith moment, because I couldn't, I, I identify with that so much and how important and precious this life is and, um, and not to take any of it for granted and to be reminded again and again, it, it's, it, you know, there's no more of this, you know, we're mm -hmm. never going to have this again. And you now there's just moments when even just to say, okay, I'm going to take stock of this moment. Exactly. Um, and, and just really like, even, even with the grief of it and all of it, I'm just going to, I'm not going to just keep walking. And I, I do think like there's something about being awake Mm -hmm. in, t in the world like this is the moment be awake exactly. uh, and uh, I, and I, I think for me growing up queer I was kind of always like wanted to I was living for some imagined future that was going to be better than the the present that I had and that mindset I think is really hard to shake um, even mm -hmm. as I've sort of come out and started living the life that I want to live um, I still find myself sometimes thinking about more about the future than I am about the present, yeah. um, especially yeah. when the present has challenges or complications. And there's another sort of insight in this life that I find really valuable, which is that there's a difference between saying I desire suffering or I want suffering and saying suffering is a part of the life that I desire. And, you know, in moments of grief in moments of loss, um, you know, it, I think I find myself remembering, you know, there's a, a way of living in which you sort of detach from the world and you don't, you know, you sort of don't open yourself up to that risk and vulnerability of loss. But that's not really the kind of life I want to have. I want to spend my time in ways that bring me closer to people, that bring me closer to the experiences that make life meaningful, even if that opens me up to, you know, pain and grief and 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 discomfort and all of that yeah yeah well it's it's interesting you talk about like uh, the queer life and and always wanting the future and there were the there was the big campaign it gets better yeah which i think was meant to like instill hope and i yeah. do think it was important to, that like what you're where you are now and if you feel trapped it doesn't have to be your future i think For that's sure. really important that is sure. an important message but then the idea that it it gets better like at some point i'm going to get there is like also like a false hope you know right. I mean, it, you know at some point you have to like recognize i have to live fully as much as i can now i wonder if we can t take it a little bit from you know this this really personal awareness to how that fits into our our your local community but also our national ethos right now and looking back if there's things that you look at over the last year that you're like oh boy okay mm -hmm. are there any things that comes up and then are there ways that we might possibly learn from it uh as a nation or as your community and go forward like yeah. is there anything that comes to mind Oh, gosh, so much. Um, I found myself reflecting quite a bit on this recently, because as you, I think you and I talked about recently, uh, my first book, Faithiest, just turned 10, which is completely absurd. Um, <laughs> and 
I, I was um, having a number of conversations with people who were sort of looking back on the book about sort of where we are now versus where, you know, we were 10 years ago. And there's a lot, obviously, that's shifted. You know, when Faithius came out, I feel like the cultural climate was different. Um, I It felt like a time when there was a lot of hope about the sort of possibilities of dialogue across lines of difference. I think right now people feel less hopeful about that. Things feel more fractured, more polarized. Um, we've seen a huge rise in, you know, the influence of Christian nationalism. And um, I think a lot of people are asking themselves sort of, you know, how possible are these kinds of dialogues? But for me, I remain, you know, incredibly committed to the value of, you know, those, those kinds of conversations. Um, not because I think like... For, Certainly one of the things I've learned over the last 10 years is that there are people who are just not going to be open to a conversation with me no matter what, because of, you know, how I um, speak, because of how I present myself, maybe now because I have knuckle tattoos, <laughs> um, you know, but also because of my identities, because I'm a queer person, because I'm an atheist, but they might be open to having a conversation with you a friend of mine who is of, you know, a, a different faith tradition. They might be um, open to a conversation with my friend Amber, who is uh, an evangelical Christian. And these are, you know, friendships I've made in interfaith spaces who I, you know, in, in many ways, we're sort of teaching one another how to be allies and accomplices so that we can go back into our own communities and do work that maybe you know, some of us aren't able to do. So like, for example, in terms of addressing the rise of Christian nationalism, I feel as a queer atheist, there's little I can do besides sort of use my voice and my platform. I think my Christian friends have a lot more sort of opportunity to address it. And so I want to be supportive of them and encouraging of them in doing so. So I, I think right now we're in a moment where a lot of people are feeling less than optimistic about the sort of power and potential of alliance building and dialogue but to me they're they're as important as they've ever been because yeah um, i, I think know, actually what you're saying is that you know uh, we can't you know it's it's back to this kind of like we can't rely on false hope anymore. Like right. this is just going to happen, you know, right. gonna, you know, like I think like, you know, that the idea of the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice, right. the, the idea that it just kind of bends that way, and, you know, <laughs> we're along for a ride is right. probably the biggest misunderstanding of that idea. But, you know, we have to, you know, the idea is that we we have a responsibility to, I, I think you've named it really well. I feel well, the same way as someone who's been in that space, for a long time too, is that it doesn't feel as like inevitable that we will be able to create these kind of um, interreligious conversations, but it feels as important as ever to be strategic about the how they happen mm -hmm. in order to, I think, like really confront the biggest threat to, you know, a diverse America that we've faced, which is white Christian nationalism, as you've named. You yeah, know, I mean, I think it's really like this is like a clear and existential danger to our absolutely. country. And, and the question and, is, you know, what's the alternative? Do nothing. I mean, I right. I teach at a Lutheran university, Augsburg in Minneapolis, and um, though I'm an atheist, I'm very influenced by the Lutherans uh, around me, and so I find myself thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer constantly. Um, the chair of our department is also a Bonhoeffer scholar, so that doesn't, that doesn't hurt. But um, 
Bonhoeffer said something that I just think about all the time, which is that, you know, Bonhoeffer argued that Christians have a responsibility to live as if there is no God, by which he meant that Christians can't just sort of sit around and do nothing and expect God to intervene in the face of injustice. Rather, Christians have to do the work of, you know, have to do God's work in the world. And there's only a slight degree in in difference between living as if there is no God and not believing in God as I do. And so I, I think, you know, for me, I've found a lot of, um, you know, sort of solidarity with Christians who have that mindset, which is that, you know, it's, it's up to us together to address yeah. these sort of existential yeah. I lo- threats I love, that we I love face. Bonhoeffer as like, uh, as, as, uh, Actually, kind of an interesting hero to atheists because of that statement. I think no, well, I, mean, I think that's really interesting. Not a hero, but you know, like you know, well, what he's I mean? also like, just somebody... like he's such a. I think he's such a vital touchstone right now in the sort of cultural yeah. moment that we're well, in. So. I mean, especially given you know his historical context, our exactly. historical context. Exactly. Now, what's going on with Augsburg? Because like you're there, isn't Najiba Saeed there as well? I mean, there's something like there's something <laughs> in the water at Augsburg <clears throat> right now that tastes really good. And I'm, I'm 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 a McAllister graduate, so it's hard for me to say uh, sure. that. Uh, uh, but but you know I you know and, and a proud alum. But I just think that that's amazing. I mean yeah. I think it's so so cool. So any final words for us? Like what what if you you know you you you're surrounded by students. You're you're part of a community. You have all kinds of networks. What is like. Do you have like a um, kind of – not a rallying cry, but you know something going into 2023 that you hope that we will keep in front of us? Mm. Well, the reason I got this life <laughs> tattooed on my knuckles is because I really am trying to sort of keep that at the forefront of my mind, this, this sense of urgency really around living the life that I – and, you know, that I wish want to live that feels meaningful to me. Um, and to not only sort of ensuring that for myself, but also working to ensure that others can live a meaningful life too. Um, that in the face of, you know, the sort of great challenges we we are confronted with, that we can come together and build a sort of, you know, a shared public good for everyone. And so that is, that's my commitment for 2022 is to try and make sure that I'm doing that for myself and for others. And I hope yeah, others will too. Yeah. Actually, I love this life uh, as a rallying cry right now. I mean, I feel like that was just such a gift you gave us. So thank you very much. Chris Stedman is a former humanist chaplain at Harvard University, a founding director of the Yale Humanist Society. He is the author of the book Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious, which is 10 years old, <laughs> but still a, now it's become a classic, people. And the recently published IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital World. Chris is the host of the Unwritten Podcast and teaches in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Chris, great to talk with you. Thanks for being part of the New Year episode of State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. 
Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.